Hello, welcome to Curious Objects brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. My guests today are Pippa Biddle and Ben Davidson. Uh, it's it's nice to have another Ben on the podcast. Do what we can. And uh, yeah, together they own and operate um, Quitner Antiques uh, in Germantown, New York. Uh, they also write a regular column for the magazine Antiques called Object Lesson, uh, which I highly recommend. Um, and the, they wear and have worn a variety of different hats, which we'll get into um, as, as the conversation goes on. But I wanted to just start right off the bat asking you about um, Quintner Antiques. Um, this is, after all, a podcast about antiques. Um, and and I think listeners would be interested to hear a little bit about the nature of the shop. Um, what is it? What do you buy and sell? Uh, and, and, and then later on, we'll get into a bit of the history behind it and, and how you uh, got into the business. But um, uh, what, what would be, you know, a, a typical sort of piece that you would buy and sell at, at Quintner? Yeah, so um, what we buy and sell at Quintner has changed a little bit, actually, over the pandemic, because we decided to close our retail store and move our store entirely online. We still do in-person restoration and repair work, um, but it's just sort of adjusting to this new normal. Um, so we mostly focus on smalls, um, small decorative objects, uh, and we try to hit a pretty approachable price point. So those are two things that size and what we'd be able to sell it for that we sort of take into every item that we look at. Um, but a big thing for us, both of us are quite passionate about sort of Amer American colonial style pieces that speak to that style and really the style of the Hudson Valley. Um, we're not mid-century modern people. You don't see a lot of uh, lightly stained wood. Um, or chrome. Or chrome. Yeah, you don't <laughs> see a lot of chrome. Um, we really like painted boxes. So mm -hmm. we obsess a little over painted boxes. Um, but a lot of it's a passion project as to what we see being beautiful and being able to be brought into someone's home in a way that is truly additive to the environment they live with and that brings in warmth. Um, which I know is really unspecific, uh, but does allow us to really take a broad, broad like vision when we yeah. go to auction or when we go to buy. Um, we're able to look without having to have laser focus and really think about what what is beautiful and what fits in a home and what makes us feel good. It's interesting, you know. I mean, if I heard what you had just said without any context, without having talked to you before, or without having read your your articles in the magazine antiques and and that sort of thing i might uh, i might be sort of dismissive i might think oh gosh well you know it, it sounds like you're not really a specialist you don't you are just sort of buying cute things and and uh, probably don't know a whole lot about the the history and so on maybe that's just cuz i'm pretentious but um but uh, but you do i mean you you both are are quite deeply knowledgeable about really a wide variety of uh of uh, American colonial forms and uh, other types of objects. Um, so, you know, most of the dealers that I think of who are who really have um, specialized knowledge uh, about decorative arts, they run businesses that are oriented toward the most expensive objects, the highest end pieces, and they tend to specialize in a fairly narrow area. Um, but but that's not the case for you. So um, so how how does that work, and how did that come about? I think, um, I'm going to let Ben take half of that. I think that half of it is how we entered the business and sort of the collection we started with. Half of it is that we are absolutely 
I'll completely embrace uh, materialistic, pretentious individuals when it comes to this field um, and for our own private collections. But something that we really committed to day one is that we are a small town business and we want any individual in the town that we live in, in Germantown, to feel comfortable coming in and getting something from us, whether they are a set decorator buying for Warner Brothers or they are a man getting an anniversary gift for his wife. We want to have something that they can come in and find. I think that um, the Hudson Valley is awash with very, very talented dealers who are at the very high end of the market. Um, we're just south of Hudson, which has the iconic Warren Street. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's really a need right here for someone else to come in and sell someone a $10,000 dresser. But there is a need to build a connection between people who do not have that budget and beautiful, beautiful things that are not new. And that's something that we take quite personally, but Ben can speak to really the inventory that we started with and how we started. Yeah, and beyond, I mean, before, like, I absolutely can, can talk about that as it was my collection that we, we started with, uh, that we were very quickly trying to sell off. Um, but, um, but in a larger sense, I, we both grew up in, in households that, uh, had, um, a great many antiques and, um, but in the, in the style of, it was, it was a couple of generations of collectors who, you know, each had their own you know, kind of curio cabinet of things and what they were interested in. And then, you know, they pass it all on to a kid who absolutely hated it, but, you know, kept it around and then added their things so that it, they felt better with it. Um, and so we, we both come from backgrounds and um, lives where we weren't, it never had the kind of uh, iconoclasm of coming in and cleaning it for a particular style. Um, so we, we came from kind of canvases that were already stained with a, a generalist tinge where you know mm. it's more that oh these two things complement each other even if they're not from the same maker or from the same era or even um you know styles that speak to each other they just together they are very beautiful um but beyond that i also one i can only speak for myself but when i came into an age where i i was reflecting on kind of why i liked some things and not others i just kind of recoiled to a degree from these the siloing of a specialization and, a, and an over deep focus on one aesthetic form or style because i i think that it's all too bad it becomes a very um it, i mean in the same way that a lot of education today is, is it's very specialized very hyper focused and then no one can see outside of their field and um and so when i i started into restoration well probably get into this later but i started in um restoring an arts and crafts house outside of philadelphia that was built and or designed and built by william price who was an arts and crafts architect but he was not and quite consciously not a frank lloyd wright or a you know or any of the others who or a um a stickley who you know made their own genre and then built in that genre and if you bought a, a frank lloyd wright house you got frank lloyd wright's furniture if you bought a stickley set like then they wanted to sell you the next piece of stickley uh well price was very much he he started in the gothic 
and built kind of this gothic revival style and then he was hired to design a casino and he laughed at them he was like are you insane i am the opposite of anyone you want designing a casino and he built a casino that he very consciously and, and explicitly said it will be a palace to the worst vices of mankind and it's <laughs> it was the the old blenheim uh, ca uh casino in um uh atlantic city and it, it it's been demolished but uh but if you see pictures of it it is a remarkably consciously meticulously hideous building like it I is love that self-awareness decadent in a way that is astonishing um and he did it on he was like the a building's exterior should reflect what is done within it why do we build banks that look like palaces we should build banks that look like money lenders dens in every folk tale like it should look like a place that you do not want to go and this is obviously you know around the time of you know stock market crash and, and uh mm -hmm. so it you know reflected the but but his his whole point was don't build for a style build for the people that you're building for design for the people who are going to live in it and so when he designed these homes he knew what the couple or what the family owned previously mm -hmm. so they had a bunch you know so the the house that i was restoring they owned a bunch of federalist antiques and and a couple of victorian pieces and and a bit of you know kind of early craftsman style a bit of spanish colonial and he just he built a house that was simple and reflective of that with you know the intention that their lives would fit in it and i think that that has always influenced our collecting where it's really it all could go together mm -hmm. um even and and even if it doesn't it wasn't all meant to go together yeah, I think that it's building a home. I mean, my family's lived in the same house for over 250 years. And the house has never been refurnished. So we've added to it. It's in Dover, Delaware. It's called the Ridgely House. It's where my mom grew up. It's where my grandfather grew up. It's where every generation before that grew up. Um, it's uh, a really important house historically to, to American history and the history of the state of Delaware. Um, but it's a family home. Uh, and so I grew up where you would open up the dresser where you put your clothes and there's a note there that my grandmother wrote in the eighties that was to help the tour guide who would show the house every couple months to guests, uh, to advise them on the history of the bedroom set. Mm. And that was just a normal thing to see. And so you see this accumulation and this collection and these pieces that if you were to go into any sort of high-end shop they'd never say to put together. But I know they go together because I live with them together. And that's something that we, we really try to work with our clients on is envisioning how their spaces can evolve to reflect them. I think that um, start-to-finish design can be an absolutely beautiful thing. I mean, look at the pages of Architectural Digest. Like seeing people who take um, blank plots of land and turn them into these really masterpieces of obsession is amazing but there's also another type of obsession it takes a much longer time and that's accumulation mm -hmm. and it's collection which and is how it's most of us inevitably live our lives mm -hmm. it's how most people live our live their lives and mm -hmm. it's so much more approachable and it's so much more warm and it allows room for eccentricity and i mean both ben and i were very young i'm 28 he's 29 we've both had a variety of careers and directions in life prior to getting into this business um, that sort of belie our age. And if we were told that we had to focus on one thing for the rest of our lives because that's the thing we picked when we were 28, that'd be miserable to me. 
Yeah. Well, we have. It's just antiques and not, you know, Dunlap furniture from one generation of makers. That's that is sort of the joy of us writing the objects lessons column. And I feel like I sort of conned Greg, the editor in chief, into letting us do it because he came into the store one day. Um, and I, as I said, work as a writer and I pitched him. I said, hey, I heard yeah. that you're now like the head honcho in charge. I want to write this thing and I want to write it with Ben. Um, and it's our excuse to just explore something we don't know much about or obs- or are obsessed about and think someone else should be obsessed about. Yeah. Um, it's it, it allows us to wear the badge of generalist quite proudly and to convince people who are far above our rank in this industry to talk to us for hours on end, which is a amazing opportunity. Well, you made a good impression on Greg. I mean, he, he even published an editor's note about his his meeting you and talking with you. Uh, that was the first time I had heard about you. So uh, yeah. that's the first I, time I, I'd heard about her, and we were married. So <laughs> <yeah>. was, <laughs> we weren't even married yeah, yet. We weren't married yet. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Sorry. That okay. Was a so I want to I want to uh, sort of ground us a little bit here because um, you know, we could talk all day, but there is actually a curious object um, that is the the focal point of our conversation today, ostensibly. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I think it will sort of reveal a little bit about your mentality and and your approach to to this business. Um, and there's a great story behind it. So um, so the the curious object is actually a, a box that you know it didn't come from some fancy Christie's or Sotheby's sale. Um, you you've told me that you uh, basically found it on the riverside. Um, so t- tell me, tell me about uh, t- discovering this box and and what you learned about it. Yeah, so um, maybe Ben can give a little description of it first, so people can imagine it. Yeah, um, and and we will have pictures on uh, oh, magazineitx dot com. Um, but but for our listeners, yeah, t- I mean, how big is it? It's. Um, I just was saying, but I don't have the the measurements because I. What's funny is it's actually about 12 feet away from us right now, but it's wrapped Uh in like 15 layers of bubble wrap in the middle of a move. Um, The size of a basketball? A basketball would just barely fit in it. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. A basketball would fit in the fully wrapped package that it's in currently. A basketball would would just, um, the inner core of a basketball, if you turn a basketball into a square, like if you cut the the roundness out of a basketball, Uh would fit. It's it's probably, how, how large is that? Well, now I feel like someone's going to judge me for not knowing the size of a basketball. Um, well, we're past the basketball, Pippa. How large are my fingers? I'd say it's 10 inches square. All right, yeah, it's it's about, yes, I would say it's 10 right. inches. It took um, us a while to get around to that, but 10 inches. I could take that yeah. again if you'd like. Uh, <laughs> I would say that it's about 10 inches uh, across and maybe 12 inches tall. Yeah, um, and, and it's a wooden box, but it has um, iron banding. Yes, yeah. On corners and uh, or edging and um, and corners. So what and caught your what caught your eye about it? Do you want to tell the story of how? Well, that? yeah. So what really I was oh, wait, skeptical. Wait, should we just what caught our eye about it and then tell the story next? Um, sure. Why don't you say why you why you <laughs> decided to bid on it? Yeah. All right. Sorry. And then I'll tell you why I was miserable the entire time. There you go. That's right. <laughs> um, so uh, when we first saw it, I thought that the iron looked um, hand-forged or competently faked, if it was a fake. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a curious size, uh, but I, I thought that you know, the, the, um, 
finish had, had, was crazing and um and you know that that it, it seemed a, a an inelegant box to fake if someone were faking um but too kind of well done to be a low quality fake if it were faked so i i thought that it was um you know something that uh that was striking in kind of its understatedness. Yeah, and there wasn't really a description to guide us. I mean, we were sitting in folding chairs in an unheated warehouse. Uh, Warehouse itself is a generous term. Um, In the middle of winter, I'd we remember it as being one of the first things that came up for auction. Um, But I actually think, based on the fact I remember not being able to feel my fingers anymore, that it was a bit, it was after like a parade of uh, G.I. Joe figurines and Barbies. Uh-huh. And we were pretty uh, frustrated because we were sort of scared that nothing we were interested in would come up. Um, it's, it's a pretty uh, free form auction format. And we were the youngest people there by approximately two centuries. <laughs> and it was also my first time ever at an auction like this and our first time together at an auction. And I, I knew that Ben at that point had a um, really strong um, affliction called shopping. And he really liked buying things. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of went into, yeah, antiques. Things is not fair. Antiques and high value antiques. He's very yeah. good at spotting things. It's dangerous. Um, but I sort of went in feeling like I was going to have to hold him back because I have the opposite affliction, which is that I am consistently terrified that I'm broke, despite the fact it's never happened. Um, And this box came up for auction, and the description that was said by the auctioneer was, this is a kind of nice box, locked, (laughs) no key, may have $1,000 in it, but probably not. Feels pretty empty. Feels pretty... Let's yeah. start the bidding at $50. Yeah, so they started the bidding, and then the no one bid, and it went, they lowered the price. No one bid, they lowered the price. Ben shoots his hand up oh, So this was a Dutch 25. auction. It's going backwards it's from... It's not supposed to be. <laughs> it's not supposed to be. <laughs> it was, actually, and if I it was just very cold that day. It was the first item, which is why I, could, I was like, I'll be kind and at least let this one sell, because it seems to be the first item of the day, and, you know... Uh, uh-huh. And so I, I, I bet on I believe. I mean, that's it's we have slightly divergent memories. But yeah, either so, way, yeah. he ended up winning it for about 25 bucks. We s- just stashed it underneath our chairs. The auction went on. We ended up with a van full of stuff. We spent uh, an eye watering sum that day of about three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And I felt quite uh yeah, I was just, I was like, how did we possibly spend that much? Now I laugh, obviously, because that is. Is, that is so chump change <laughs> compared yeah. to what happens now. Um, but we ended up with this box, and I, I really sort of forgot it existed. Um, perhaps I, I hoped that it hadn't happened um, until Ben took it out to his workshop and, and came back into the house about an hour later, and he said, one, I got it open, and guess what? There's keys inside. So that's super helpful. So yeah. now, it's a lo- now it is a box with keys, um, and there's also a note. And what did the note say? Uh, so the note said, this is the worst framing of that. Uh, the, uh, the note said, General Peter Gansford used box on Mohawk River uh, in expedition against Indians, great-grandfather of William L. Martin. 
And then on the back, um, it was dated. November 25th, 1943. Wow. Okay, so let's unpack that. So 1943, somebody wrote this note, presumably about their Mm -hmm. great-grandfather. And this was a fellow named Peter Gansfort. Now, did you already know who Peter Gansfort was? I did not. I had no idea. Ben knew immediately. I, I knew Peter Gansfort as Colonel Gansfort of the Fort Stan of the Battle of Fort Stanwix, um, of the uh, Saratoga campaign in seventeen seventy seven. Yeah, I'm sure um, listeners are all familiar with the Saratoga campaign, but uh, maybe just to refresh our memories, what was that oh, all about? The Saratoga campaign was when gentleman Johnny Burgoyne uh, or um, all right, I'll stop, Pippa. Uh, no, was, I love this. I, was, I'm always impressed, so go when for it. Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne uh, led his troops on a, a campaign down, ostensibly from Canada through New York to hopefully sever the rebellious colonies in half um, so that they could take the northern colonies and where they, because the British believed that the southern colonies were ripe with. Um, Tory sympathizers and so they said we'll we'll cut them in half and then we'll deal with the rebels to the north Um, and he was beaten at Saratoga uh, by Benedict Arnold or rather sorry by um, no I'll just yeah I'll stump for Benedict Arnold in this early campaign by Benedict Arnold he won the battle Um, and and so as a part of that the British had first advanced on a series of forts of Fort George which was also under Gansfort's command fell they actually just retreated from it, and then they took their stand at Stanwix, where they withstood siege uh, for about three weeks. Um, and uh, I'm looking at my notes to find there. So, oh, uh, yeah, in defense of Fort Stanwix, um, about three weeks, and then um, they were relieved by Benedict Arnold, and uh, Gansford had, you know, been commended by Congress. And John Adams said, "He's shown that a man can hold a fort," which I guess was high praise, but just sounds pretty pretty blase. It's like that is accurate, John. <laughs> That's that's what he did. Uh, but so that's I knew Gansfort from that campaign. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what the element of on the Mohawk River was. Um, and so it wasn't until later that um, I I read about his being employed in the Sullivan Expedition, which was in 1779. Um, and it's um, it's a pretty. It's a pretty. uh <laughs> questionable campaign actually it's it i think that for as we as we can recognize now um the way in which our country has treated native peoples um throughout our history has left much to be desired um and so it's interesting to now sort of have this box that was taken on uh based on the note taken on an expedition that uh, if you when when it happened, the understanding of that expedition was one thing. When this note was written, that understanding of that expedition was another. And now, today in 2020, the understanding of that expedition is um, yet again sort of recontextualized. Uh, and to me, that's that's a really interesting piece of its history. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a, yeah, it's a great difficulty that the the Iroquois Confederacy would. Which is um, the the forces uh, well part part of the forces that, against which um, the Sullivan campaign was um, sent uh, were very powerful and very fearsome and quite 
very feared at the time. Um, and so it means that there was a, a level of, um, I mean, of celebration and even into the 1940s um, for someone who participated in a, in a campaign like that. Um, whereas now, in, and in light of subsequent events, it, it, it um, becomes a, it takes on a very different cast. Yeah. Um, yeah. We understand better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, but, oh, so, so back to the, to the box. So we, um, I did more reading on it, um, you know, kind of bragged about it as much as possible to, to immediate family. Uh, no one was ex- as excited as we were. It was actually really upsetting. All of a sudden, I think we both realized that we decided to go into a, a line of work in which uh, our entire life may be plagued by the feeling that no one quite understands. Mm. Yeah. Well, it, some people were excited, but it was the equivalent of if we found $75 in a hotel safe. Exactly. And I was like, well, that's nice. Look at that. Isn't right. that lovely? And it's like, well, come on, it's a bit better. You know, and, yeah. And so tell lovely. me, yeah. So tell me about how you yeah. felt. I mean, when you, when you found this note, when you started connecting these dots, like, how, how did that make oh. you feel? I immediately felt like all of my assumptions on it being a kind of nice box were completely justified. I mean, I think the first couple hours I was being reminded every 20 minutes that I should blindly trust Ben's vision um, and that $25 was a great deal and we could have paid five times as much. Obviously, it's now probably 500 times as much and been been totally totally fine with it but i think that for both of us like so much of what we seek in antiques is context is story and uh as shop owners especially when our retail store was open the most common question that we'd get from people is well where is this from what is the story and the reality is that for so many of the items that pass through our hands the best we can do is really a broad stroke sketch of what a story might be. Yeah, like where it could have originated. Yeah, and when a story falls into your lap, it's it's astonishing. Yeah. And it, um, and, yeah. And to be fair, so our next step, because really the, the down the road feeling when things had kind of the jubilation had settled was all right well we'd really better check to make sure that this isn't just faked or or that someone hadn't written a note and then put it in uh, you know eventually wound its way into a different box or you know something yeah or people get confused and forget their exactly or that this was uh, yeah or an embellished story that just just you know someone had an old box and they're like oh let me tell you about this box kid but um so we uh saw it out uh the um people's the the staff at people's island which is the state of new york's restoration and antiques maintenance hub um and uh and they don't do work on private um pieces they they don't want anyone else to ask them if they will because they get that all the time mm-hmm. um but uh but i was Sorry, able listeners. to <laughs> yeah, yeah, and sorry us honestly. It's it's more like please though, just this one. Uh, but they were willing to to meet about uh, the piece and just give me their their, you know, uh, they could not assess it or um or appraise it, it for its value, but they they were willing to uh, give their professional opinion on um kind of their their thoughts on you know the authenticity of it, um and. I, it turned out, and that's all they told me when I got there. It turned out that they they 
had a somewhat ulterior motive for being willing to see it, but they first, you know, looked at it and they they um, kind of came to the conclusion they think that it it is in fact from the 18th century. It uh, you know n nothing about it is um, is a tell against it. Like obviously the the provenance is um, anecdotal because of the note, but I believe the the comment in in their you know summation was like uh, it's too random and uninteresting a piece to have likely been faked. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right. It's too boring. That is um, the salvation of so many uh, so stories of provenance. Many. Yeah. So, well, if, and, uh, if you were yeah. faking this, wouldn't you make it a lot better? Yeah, like, wouldn't you do this, <laughs> but more interestingly, for a larger sum? Um, so they believe that it's a personal medical chest um, that mm. the general may have taken on campaign. Uh, and as it turns out, it is the only physical object to survive from the campaign on the Sullivan expedition. Wow. So there are no other like hats or uniform or anything that has made it down the you know down the centuries. And so when before COVID, we were um, we were discussing they're using it for uh, an exhibition on kind of New York State's whatever um, anniversary they're coming up on. Um, which uh, which is now on hiatus just because of we don't know when they'll be able to do it, but um, but that was a very exciting and interesting and and rewarding thing to learn that not only is it a piece of history that we were able to save, but it's the last bit of history from something. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you know was particularly rewarding. Yeah, and I think one of our goals with it is to be able to loan it. Um, we don't want to use it um which most of the antiques that we choose to keep for ourselves we use quite heavily um we don't have you chosen have... to keep this one yeah yeah we'll be keeping it um I, we've never discussed selling it um what we have discussed is, is loaning it so putting it on long-term loan most likely to the state if they remain interested um because i think that the educational value of it is quite good um, the ability to connect a material object to a event and a story is, is so important. And if it's one of the only material or the only material object that connects to this story, that's a really valuable thing. Um, but I don't think either of us right now have come to terms with the idea of selling it. So we haven't even pursued that as a as an option. Well, particularly when we learned that Gansfort was the maternal grandfather of Herman Melville. I mean, I was just like, we can never sell it. it it's worth too much. I mean, my God. I'm laughing. That is extremely cool. <laughs> I, I just, it's, it's, unfortunately, that fact apparently is more important than almost any other fact of Peter Gansford. So finding a biography of him that doesn't just like, then say, also, he was uh, Herman Melville's grandfather. And you're like, yeah, great. You know, it's funny. I mean, him. this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, I was talking with a colleague of mine recently about uh, this this notion of, provenance and association with important historical figures and so on. And, and we deal uh, largely in uh, antique English silver. And so, uh, you know, the provenance often relates to important dukes and earls and barons and that sort of thing. Um, and my colleague made the point that, you know, oftentimes the problem that we have with provenance is if it didn't belong to the Queen of England or to George Washington, or Thomas Jefferson, you know, who cares? 
Yeah. And, and even people who played extremely significant historical roles, uh, there is the, you know, the value that the provenance adds to those objects versus the value that the provenance adds when it did come from Thomas Jefferson. It, you know, it, it, it's almost as if it, the provenance may as well not be there. Um, and Gansevoort is one of these figures who, you know, I mean, if you look up his, his Wikipedia page, as I've done, um, there there is a significant amount of information. He's a, a figure of some public and historical interest, um, you know, played an important role in the birth of the country. Uh, and yet, my guess is if you walk down the street, even in a Hudson Valley town, uh, and pulled people about their knowledge of, of Peter Gansevoort, uh, you, you might be disappointed. I, I'm just going out on a limb there. But um, so it's, it's it. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. It, it's the difficulty of as you grow more distant from major events. It, uh, one of my favorite popular historians who also has a podcast, his name is Mike Duncan, um, has made the quip that uh, in in about another 500 to 1000 years, if the United States is still around, the story will be that George Washington single-handedly birthed the nation and that he was born from a cherry tree and that his teeth were wooden so he can prove it. Like the, the, <laughs> the legend just grows and encompasses all other roles within major events such that by the time that it, you know, even to our day, like, you know, who was Peter Gansford? He was, oh, he was on the Sullivan expedition. What was the Sullivan, you know? And it's, you know, who were the Tories? They were in New York City. You know, it just becomes this like background noise that, is distracting from like but, but that's what the, makes it so interesting to have an object right as yeah. opposed to um to oral tradition or other kinds right. of you know preservation of history because the object gives you that physical focal point um yeah. that yeah. excuse for conversation almost i mean here we are talking about general gansevoort yeah. um uh, on a very popular and widely listened to podcast um and not to not to toot yeah. your own horn. <laughs> I, I think that something the reason I get so excited, despite if you'd asked me when we got the box who Peter Gansvort was, I would have told you sounds like the name of a hotel. Um, but I come from a family where for me history has always been personal. Um, on one side, it's the Biddle family, one of the oldest banking families in America. Um, and growing up, I would take AP U.S. history tests and see my relatives in the political cartoons I was supposed to critique. On the other side, my family is one of the oldest Delaware families in our country, the Ridgelys. Um, and as I mentioned, we've lived in the same house uh, since the 1760s. It was built in 1726. Um, history for me has always been intensely personal. And I didn't really understand why um, until I got older and realized that other people didn't have things they could point to and say, that's my history. And I think that the beautiful thing about a material culture and when you have provenance and you have those stories is it gives more people that opportunity to point to things and say, oh, I can build a bridge between myself and that object. And when you build that bridge, you create... Um, a whole new field for understanding. And that's a really exciting thing.
We'll be right back with Pippa Biddle and Benjamin Davidson. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Curious Objects, the best thing to do is to leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're using right now. It won't hurt, I promise. And it'll help new listeners find their way here. I love hearing your comments and your suggestions for future episodes, so please be in touch. You can email me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Objective Interest. I also have a favor to ask on behalf of the magazine Antiques. They've put together a listener survey at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. So go there, scroll down, and click the link uh, if you'd like to help them and me understand more about our audience. Much appreciated. So Ben, um, t- tell me about, uh, so you, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, sort of how Pippa's background and how your family history has uh, primed you for a life invested and interested in, in antique objects. But Ben, um, you, you're coming to this from uh, the angle of, of restoration, of craftsmanship. Um, t- tell me more about that. Well, um, I mean, I, I also grew up in a house full of antiques, not that, um, not with the direct provenance of, of um, the Ridgeleys, but, um, but so there was a, there was a familiarity and comfortability that, um, that I think is pretty helpful in getting into this field. Um, just the number of people who have come into the shop and then like are afraid to touch anything and we're like, oh, let me just open that for you. Like, mm-hmm. no, nah, that's fine. Um, but uh, but then, yeah, after college, I, I studied um, medieval history and um, constitutional development, which was useful in, in life. Um, uh, and so um, after graduating, I kind of jumped around in things that um, I could do and then uh, had a wonderful opportunity fall. Um, upon me that uh, to be the live-in caretaker of the Thunderbird Lodge outside of Philadelphia that was um, uh, built by the arts and crafts architect William Price. Uh, it was his first kind of ground-up um, remodel. There was it was a stone dairy barn in an old mill town called Rose Valley that he r- turned the the old stone barn into two um, a two-story studio space for this artist couple and then built the uh, kind of somewhat gothic inspired, but really largely um, just American crafts, you know, kind of a simple craftsman, contemporary, very um, straightforward and traditional without really any kind of directly linkable elements uh, that rambled off of the stone barn. It's a, it, it has an octagonal tower in the middle of it. It's a this very beautiful home um, that had been in it had been sold by the original couple that it was built for towards the end of their lives to a family, and then it stayed in that family for the next, um, what, 80-plus years. Um, and so after they they sold it to the town's museum, uh, which at that point didn't have a physical location, and so the town's museum was the just beginning the process of removing everything that had been kind of added or done to the interiors over the hundred years. So the museum uh, per- or, uh, the museum uh, obtained the house, I think, yeah. um, and they were just starting the process of restoring it back to how it had 
originally been designed and built. Um, and they were looking for a live-in caretaker. Uh, and so I, I was selected for that. Um, it was supposed to be like a 10-year project where the rent was like $80 a month. It was really an amazing wow. opportunity to... Uh, they were like, yeah, it's it's basically a, a, you know 5,000 square feet of living space. Then each of the studios was another like 4,000 square feet. And so they were like, furnish it however you want. You know, we won't <laughs> be using the space for 10 years. And I was like, great, can do. Um, and hence the eventual storage unit of antiques that we then had to sell off because uh, I did that. Um, but then as they were bringing in kind of tradespeople to start you know, pulling walls that had been thrown up back and things like that, uh, I just kind of popped in and was like, you know, can I, can I watch how you do that? Or eventually like, can I, you know, I think I can do this one myself. And so um, just kind of learned very, uh, you know, kind of hands-on, it was a very fun process and uh, engaging. And then we were, we finished the majority of the restoration work about eight years ahead of schedule. Wow. And uh, I thought that was great because, you know, I did a great job and mm -hmm. yay. And instead, I had cut myself out of eight years of very low rent uh, mansion life. And, um, and uh, so I kicked myself pretty quickly. But um, I then started doing uh, just kind of interior restoration work for a number of landlords in West Philly. Um, and then came back to New York as my parents had moved into a home that my grandmother had uh, owned and they needed some help with kind of handling restoration of these historic properties and so I started working here and through the whole of the process I kind of just tinkered more and more with furniture and um, other kind of historic objects mostly wood um, a little bit of metal a little bit of gilding things like that yeah so, uh, so let me ask yeah. so at, as a craftsman um, how does that change the way that you look at antiques I mean with the box you instantly recognize that it was either handmade hand wrought iron or it was a very good fake so that's a detail that um, stood out to you because you're familiar with the materials um, you know how else does that affect the way that you approach the antiques business there have been a lot well the, the wonderful element is that we can kind of take objects that have really been pushed beyond the brink for most collectors and most buyers especially at a middle range, like not at the highest tier, when, when people will throw up their hands on the thing and say like, oh, it would be great if, you know, so-and-so hadn't broken this drawer, or if, you know, this stain weren't here, or if it hadn't, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and we not only can do that work, but it means that we can bid on them for far lower, or we can pick them up and, and actually add value to them which um we get to punch above our weight a little bit yeah um because we're able to purchase things that uh are at a price point because of um sort of mistreatment maltreatment mm -hmm. uh that otherwise would be completely inaccessible to us yeah and ben is very very good at what he does and is able to bring them back to a state where they may they will never be um, unrepaired pieces. They will never be um, sort of the pristine, perfect example of what something is, but they will be beautiful, beautiful pieces that are fully functional that deserve many more years in a home. We also don't, our goal is not, like we, we could restore them where, you know, we would 
fabricate new pieces and, yeah. and we would remove the old ones that were broken or damaged or, or altered uh, and make it so that the repair was not you know would appear Detectable. that it never occurred right um i don't like that like i don't want to do the, like i'll do it you know if, if a client has a piece that they need you know absolutely obviously but for our own one your, your goal isn't to deceive in other words exactly yeah it's, yeah we we think that like i think that uh, a, a repair is part of that story you know it is part of the piece and um i think that's one of the fun things because yeah. half right now more than half of our business is restoration repair work of furniture and lighting mostly um for clients and so much of the fun of that process at least for myself seeing as i don't do any of the restoration work so i just get the great joy of showing it off once it's done is explaining to a client precisely what was done so that they can see where it was done um, so they can understand what went into it and the story that sort of has been added on to this piece through that process um and I think that a lot of what Ben does is is truly an art form. I mean, using linen to bind cracks, these things that you don't, people, people don't, obviously people still do this. We do this. There are amazing people around the world who still do this type of work, but there are fewer and fewer of them. And typically it is priced at a point where it is a type of work that's fairly inaccessible to most people. And just like we approach our retail inventory uh, with accessibility in the front of our minds, we approach the restoration or repair work we do with accessibility at the front of our minds. Um, and to be able to offer really beautiful work um, to our community at a price that may not be um, a bargain, it's an expensive process to fix things, but that's far more accessible than what is typically found, um, we're able to continue those stories. Yeah, the 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 linen repair in particular, which is uh it it it's shows, but it's a nice way of like if you have cracked drawers in a dresser, um, using a piece of linen with uh that's kind of seated into glue, like a hide glue or 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 a yellow carpenter's glue will also work. Um, it, it kind of knits the like like a gauze on a wound like it helps the the wood to knit it's a, a like knit it's like together. surgical mesh yeah. it works like yeah, surgical yeah. mesh that's a, yeah that more than Fascinating. um but it was it was fun when we were actually at the Ridgely house and I opened um, this a grandfather clock that's in one of the rooms um, and inside there was this very bit like very you know you could see at a glance that it was this very long strip of linen where clearly the moisture in the room had caused the clock to split in its back panel. And someone had just, you know, used the same exact technique in the exact hmm. same way. Um, Probably 150 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I called Pippa over. I was like, look, see, see, it's attested. So you can see that it is in <laughs> well, fact I can, the correct repair. I can say with absolute certainty that room, the design of that room or the furniture, where each yeah. piece of furniture is in that room has not changed since the 1920s as shown in uh, American interiors coffee table books. And, and uh, those that, <laughs> that are in, the, in the drawers of the piece. Uh, so like in one of the drawers, you'll open it and I'll be like, this is this is like a, a very, early, like, you know, a, a photo from the 30s of this shelf with the exact same objects in oh. the exact same place. Like, <laughs> we should dust more. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that 
Ben spends a lot of time researching and trying to gain a deeper understanding in because unfortunately one of the struggles with being in this field is acquiring information. Mm-hmm. And it is um, figuring out how to learn as much as you can. Um, and for him, for you, this a lot of this process has been learning by doing, mm-hmm. learning by researching and reading. And we maintain a um, ever-growing library of what I call reference books, but many of them are antique books that describe things like how to wire a multi-speed fan. This one took me a long time. I'm not an electrician, and we had someone who needed a multi-speed, and I like had like six books on like you know horsepower engines and and early you know just like so you want to wire your your house well first thing you've got to de- you know decide is gas or electric and you're like mm, for the lighting this is a very old book okay very good i think we'll go with electric things but it's cool because youtube is useful for lots of things and we can find out how to do almost anything on youtube but there are some things that you do in fact need to find a 1910 manual for restoration that at the time uh, was already talking about things that were old and use that as your guide. A lot of old timers have told me that they, and then, you know, which one tells you a lot about the editing process in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that you could write that sentence and no one would be like, just cut this. (laughs) People have told me, what's wrong with you? But but also, you know, it's, it's, and it is a combination of, you know, I, I have far too many books on, you know, woodworking and on, you know, contemporary furniture makers who are describing their, you know, the processes that they know and the, and the more modern, you know, tricks or methods that they use. And it, it is a common, like, especially if you have to fabricate a piece on a timeline that I don't have a workshop of apprentices who can, you know, do all of the prep work, you know, and, and turn out pieces the way that, at the speed that would be possible if there were still, you know, journeymen around. Yeah. You know. But, one um, day, yeah. Well, so one we're pi- we're pining about the past, but let's um, let's turn to the future because you know, the, both of you have sort of expressed a kind of optimism about the future that is really nice to hear, and that, uh, to be honest, you don't always hear from um, from antique dealers, particularly older generations of antique dealers these days. Um, and and I would just like to hear what your take is on on what the future looks like for people who. Are interested in in these um, you know well crafted antique objects. Well, our our uh, view on that is can come off somewhat um, harshly. To the the real the real story is that we got into this after the bubble popped, like after the the uh, kind of the, the American furniture market sort of yeah, collapses. It, and- exactly. And so where what we hear is constantly, this is nothing like what it used to be, you know, like I paid so much more for this. Um, We used to see like, I mean, we go to these country auctions where every third person is griping about how a certain folk art frame would have gone for 12,000 and now it's going for 120. Mm -hmm. Um, But, But for us, we've always seen it at, if even 120, we've always seen it at 30. 40. And so our entry point was such where, you know, we, we just, we can't help but view it. It's like, well, you, you paid a lot for that then. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a lot yeah. to have shelled yeah. out for a thing that, you know, our whole context is a, just a different bracket. 
Um, but so there's but the market also, consideration, yeah. but then there's yeah. also you, you've talked about the excitement that you've seen from your clients mm-hmm. who are who are not necessarily you know octogenarians. Yeah, I think one of the funny things when we first uh, started Quitner was that we were hearing from a lot of people that young people don't like antiques, um, <laughs> which at the time I was 26. So the fact they were even saying that to me yeah. was a little bit funny. Because I'm like, well, you're disproving yeah. yourself by yeah. having the, your conversation with me. Exhibit A. boomer moment. Exactly. Exhibit A, the two of us. Um, but also, just through the uh, sort of survey that is the our clientele, most of the people who we work with are under 50. Um, I'd say half of them are under 40. Um, our market skews young, not old. And there's increasing enthusiasm. I think that one of the things that I find really exciting as someone who's, um, both of us are quite passionate about environmentalism and sustainability, um, antiques are the greenest furniture you can buy. They've already been made. You don't need to go buy like sustainable wood new stuff. Go buy something old. Especially if it's near you. I want the like antiques industry to do like a got milk style like <laughs> industry wide ad green. campaign of like it's green buy old. It, it um, is a bumper sticker already, you know. Go green it buy is? antiques. Well, yeah. I will have to get one of those bumper stickers because it is one of my favorite conversations with my peers, and we've seen that among people our age is that they're identifying that more and more. I think also that um, this sort of hotel aesthetic has gotten old. Having every room look the same and having every space feel sterile is getting old to people. They want to feel comfortable. They want to feel at home and they want to feel warm. And I think that one of the things I love seeing is more and more people who are attracted to wood uh, where you can actually see the grain because it hasn't painted over 15 times. And uh, just they, they want to feel grounded to something yeah. and antiques yeah. provide that grounding and so for for us it's just been it's been sort of like um operating in a sometimes it feels like we're operating in a parallel universe because we're hearing from people all the time that this market is dying and no one's going into it and there's no money to be made and yet we're in it and young people are shopping with us and we're making money it's it's the difficulty of on the one hand a lot of it is market cycles where wood grain you know wood furniture showing the grain is we are seeing people be more and more open to it and it, it is coming back the reality is that in our lifetime it will also go out again like mm-hmm. if it does come back in its full it will go out again because people will have a bunch of it and then they'll not no longer want it because they'll see something else and or their kids want it yeah and it will just keep that will keep happening what's more um a, a more profound shift from my view is that it, the reason young people from what I've seen are attracted to these antiques it's very different from the reason that their grandparents or their parents were which is instead of it being about its um, and about its antiquity or about its its story or about you know where it came from or provenance it's far more about its rep like reparability that they can repair it that mm-hmm. they can, it can be maintained mm. it will not fall apart after the third move to a third new apartment you can get the thing that you love and keep it it will survive the the move or the or the breakup or whatever it is um it's not self-obsolescent yeah it, it's not 
composite. It's not a poured material that doesn't like IKEA's furniture is it's fine if you never move it again. Like if you set it up and it stays in one place forever, yeah, it's fine. Like it will be fine provided there's no flood or something, it's fine. But as soon as you move it, it it's destroyed. Uh and and that that calculation is really easy to make when you've gotten your fifth or sixth, you know, fake kitchen island and then you're like, "Why don't we just get one actually out of wood?" Like, "Oh my god, every time we just keep getting things that fall apart." Um, which is, from my perspective, that's why you see the price point staying lower. You know, it's not spiking right back up because people don't care that it was made in this town in Massachusetts in this point in time. They care that they have it and they can fix it and it will stick around, which is just a very different draw. Yeah. And, and I think that that is something that we're unlikely to see change back to how it was in for for a long time yeah Um, i think there's the the, what is precious about an an antique has shifted a little bit um for a lot of the market we deal in what is precious about it to our customers is not the fact that it is an antique it is uh in that it is sturdy and it has lasted and it will continue to last and while those two things are quite similar they're not exactly the same yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And, I, and I, I love hearing that perspective. And I, I love hearing about this um, kind of demand. Um, and it, it makes me feel good about my own future in the in the antiques world. And uh, I hope listeners feel the, feel the same way about it. Um, there, there really is a lot to look forward to. And on that note, I think um, I think I'll let you go. Uh, Pippa Biddle and, and Ben Davidson, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. All my best for the holidays. And I'll look forward to talking to you again in January when we'll be doing a special episode with the online virtual winter show. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit. And I'm your host, Ben Miller.